This morning we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, our focus this morning is on verses 9 through 16. This is God's holy, transformative, and inerrant word of God. Please give it your full attention. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. A few weeks ago, I was sitting in the waiting room of a repair shop waiting for my car to be repaired. And there was a nice guy behind the desk and he struck up a conversation with me. And at one point he said, yeah, I'm gonna be leaving here soon. My boss wants to go for a walk with me. And I said to him, your boss? I thought, does he mean the boss of the business? What boss is he referring to? He said, yeah, my dog will need to go for a walk when I go home. Well, I smiled at that response, but I looked at him kind of puzzled. And so he said to me, well, you understand, you'll never see him feeding me my dinner, and you'll never see him following me around with a plastic bag ready to pick up my poop. That is the first and hopefully last time I'll use the word poop in a sermon. <laughs> but I just couldn't resist passing along that little bit of earthy wisdom. Because I think there is some unintentional wisdom in what he said. Made me think about how much I do for my dog and how little my dog does for me. It was very humbling to realize that my dog in a real sense owns me more than I own him. But he really had a point and a good reminder to us as Christians about what Jesus taught us about what is great in the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 8, verses 43 through 45, Jesus said, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest in all the universe came not to be served, but to serve. And therefore, he says, you want to be great? You need to be like me. You need to serve. Being a servant needs to be key to your identity. You see, the world, and we hear this all day long, all around us, the world 
tells us that greatness is measured by how many people serve your needs. But in the kingdom of God, Christ measures our greatness by how many we serve and how well we serve them. To be in authority in God's visible kingdom, the church, the part of God's kingdom that is God's visible representation of the city of God to that, the world that is falling apart, to be in authority in the church, we saw back in chapter 2, means to have greater responsibility to serve, to be responsible for many people. That's what it means to be an authority in the church. It's all about service. As we entered into this passage, as we're working our way through this first epistle that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, we started this in chapter 5, what I said was kind of an unusual and long section where Paul devotes this whole portion of his letter to instructing young Pastor Timothy about how to care for the widows in the church. In verses 1 through 8 that we looked at last week, we saw that Paul focused on the responsibility that the church family and the physical family of widows had to care for widows. We talked about why widows, why do they get singled out as needy, and we talked about how in that culture, widows didn't have the kind of safety net around them that we have in this culture, that if the husband died, the widow was often left destitute. Hopefully her family would care for her, but often the family didn't. And the church had a responsibility for any of the widows in their midst to provide for them like their family because they were a real, matter of fact, their first family, their spiritual family. That's what we saw last week. What's interesting, the focus kind of shifts when you get into the second part of this passage. It talks not about how the church should and can serve these widows. It actually talks about how these widows who are being cared for by the church can serve the church. The focus is on widows serving, having been served by the church, having had their needs provided for by the church, how they should turn around then and serve in the church and for the church. Paul begins this passage by talking about them being enrolled. They were put on some side of a list. They had some special status within the church, as Paul envisioned it. We saw last week that just because your husband died didn't mean that you were what he called truly a widow in the eyes of the church, because if your family could and did care for you, then you weren't a widow in that sense. You weren't destitute. Here he adds, he seems to add in the second half of the passage, another qualification. He seems to narrow that group even more. Among those who were destitute and therefore had all their needs provided for by the church, there appears to have been a group among them that, were, had, had, that met specific uh, requirements in Paul's mind that would make them, in, in a sense, full-time ministry workers in the church. In other words, they didn't have to have a job, they couldn't have a job, but they would become supported by the church and then therefore serve the church. And that was the, the, the idea that if you understand that, you understand the background of the second half of the passage. We're talking about the greatness of being a servant. In our culture, being a servant is considered ugly. 
But in the kingdom of God, being a servant is to become, to be a servant is to become beautiful. And we saw how Paul had pointed these widows towards seeking true beauty, the inner beauty that the Holy Spirit produces in those who have their faith in Christ. Back in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul said to the women, he said, his desire was that the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Beautify yourself with good works. Don't seek the beauty that the world admires. Seek the beauty that is precious in the sight of God. The kind of beauty that Peter talked about in chapter 3 of his first epistle, where he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Good works, holiness, servitude, that is the way to beauty, to greatness in God's kingdom. Now what's interesting, as we seek to understand this kind of an unusual passage we're looking at, what I found is that conservative commentators, conservative biblical scholars, believe that in the early church there was this select group of widows that met these certain qualifications. And their needs were met, their needs were provided for, and then they would serve under the oversight of the elders and the deacons, and particularly the deacons. It's interesting, you can almost see a hint of it even in the book of Acts. In chapter 9, we meet Dorcas. Dorcas, who is called a widow, Dorcas dies, and then Peter comes and and raises her from the dead in the name of Jesus Christ. But in in that account of her being raised from the dead, it talks about the widows. It even talks about the saints and the widows. And it's clearly making a distinction that there seems to have been an identifiable group of widows. And most commentators think that, that, that what Luke is referring to in Acts 9 is actually the same kind of thing that, that uh, Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy 5. There are also some women that are named as great and beautiful servants in the New Testament, women like Phoebe and Lydia that might have been among this group of widows who served and were supported by the church. We do know that within a couple hundred years, we don't have a lot of documentation from early church history, but by 200 years after this time, we know that there was an order of widows in the church that did this kind of service work on behalf of the church. Tertullian, one of the early leaders in the church, talks about this group of women who do this kind of service, and John Stott recording it, he, he, he describes the work they did in this way. He said, they gave themselves to prayer, nursed the sick, cared for the orphans, visited Christians in prison, evangelized pagan women, and taught female converts in preparation for their baptism. What a job they had. It sums it up by saying that they offered counsel and comfort to the church. Based upon this chapter, you know how John Calvin, when he came to Geneva and tried to establish the church according to scripture and tried to do away with all the abuses of scripture that had been happening for centuries, trying to get back to the pure structure of the church, he, based on this passage, he set up an order of widows 
an order, order of women to serve under the leadership of deacons to minister to the church, especially to the other women, to children. Even in our own Book of Church order, the Presbyterian Church in America is our denomination and our official guidebook, so to speak, for the church. The Book of Church order says this in chapter 9. It is often expedient that the session of a church should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in any distress or need. These assistants to the deacons are not officers of the church and as such are not subjects for ordination. In my church in Philadelphia, we, um, again, in, in following after the lead of what Paul's talking about here, we, uh, took some of the more godly, mature women in the church, and we appointed them to work alongside a team. We set up a team of one elder and one deacon to do shepherding work among the congregation, and we added a woman as their assistant to help them do ministry to the church, to serve the needs. And deacons know that it's difficult for male deacons to do ministry to women and children. It's so helpful to have godly, mature women to come alongside so that this shepherding work can be more complete. Now, Paul, again, some of the specifics here we don't seek to apply today because Paul's dealing with a particular situation and a particular culture and a particular time. But the principles still apply today, I believe, certainly. And what were the requirements of these widows? Let's look at these just briefly. First of all, Paul required that they be experienced, faithful servants in the church. I get that from the fact that his first requirement is an age requirement. And it might even be a surprising age requirement. It says they sh that this widow should not be less than 60 years of age. And that might surprise you because you think, well, wow, wasn't the life expectancy so much shorter back then? Somebody who was 60 back then, what, must be like 150 today or something. But it, it, doesn't work, it didn't work that way. The reason that life expectancy, and I did look it up in the first century, largely scholars think life expectancy in the first century is about 35 years. Don't you all feel old now? That that was the average life expectancy. But the reason that it was only 35 years is because Half the children didn't make it past age 10. Half the children didn't make it past age 10. So basically, if you made it to adolescence, you had a good chance to get to 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. That's why you do find adults of that age in that era. But it was because of the high mortality rate of children that the age expectancy, the average age was so low. So it wasn't unusual to have women 60 years or older, and it wasn't at all unusual for those women to be widows who had lost their husbands. And so, you know, I don't think that Paul has any intent of setting up an age barrier or an age uh, gate here for the widows. His intent is to say to the church, you need mature, experienced women who have been around the block in ministry, around the block in the church, who have walked with the Lord for a long period of time, and show that, that maturity in their lives. Older widows would be able to make the commitment to full-time ministry because the church was providing for them. They, were, they had the time. And as they were able, they could serve the Lord without the distraction of having a job. These older women in the church were the least likely to be working to provide for themselves. And they were also the least likely to be tempted to get remarried. As we're going to see in a moment, that was one of Paul's concerns. 
so they could make the commitment, a commitment to Christ and commitment to the church to serve, to be an assistant to the officers of the church and to serve well. I think about that and I think 60 is actually an interesting number because in our culture, by that point, you're largely the culture considers you irrelevant. By that point, the culture tends to marginalize you. And unfortunately, even within the church, not only does the culture marginalize those that are in, in the, that segment of life, but the people in that segment of life seem to gladly marginalize themselves. And what Paul is saying is, with experience, with walking with the Lord, with, with being through the ups and downs of living in a fallen world as a sinner among sinners, you gain wisdom, you gain experience. Why are we putting some of our most experienced, some of our wisest people on the sideline and glorifying people within, without experience and putting them in positions of leadership? That's what our culture does. It should not be what we do in the church. What a repository of wisdom we have among our older saints. And so Paul is pointing to that. We need gifted, mature, experienced servants to do this kind of ministry. The second qualification is that this widow must be the wife of one husband. Now, that sounds kind of self-contradictory, doesn't it? How could a widow be the wife of one husband? But he's, what he's referring to there is the same kind of qualification we saw for elders, which is that she be a one-man woman. In other words, she was faithful to her husband while he was alive, that she has, again, a track record, long experience of showing herself to be a faithful wife and mother. And then the third requirement he gives is, and he sums it up, first of all, by calling it a reputation for good works. That's in verse 10. That she would need to have a track record of faithful service. Let me read that for you again. Um, uh, Chapter 5, verse 10. And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. The common theme to all that is serving others. That's the common theme to everything he says there. Serving her children, serving strangers through hospitality, serving the weary and the afflicted. And he usually throws in the phrase, washing the feet of the saints. And there he is seeking purposefully to remind these widows to remind Timothy, to remind the church of what Jesus taught us by his own example. He's pointing back to John 13, when Jesus, when he was contemplating what it meant to leave the throne in heaven, to come to redeem his people by the shedding of his blood on the cross, and contemplating that one day he'd be going back to the greatest position of authority in the universe and the throne in heaven. And what does he do to show his, his, his disciples what that having that kind of authority means what responsibility comes with it he puts on the attire of a servant and leans down and washes the dirty feet of his disciples and lest they miss the point he clearly says to them if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet then you also ought to wash one another's feet that's what it means to be a servant is to live like your Lord Jesus the one who as he put it in in the words of John He laid down his life for us, therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
It's a gospel-driven service. It's not a begrudging service. It's not the kind of service that looks for a pat in the back. It's the kind of service that is rooted in a gospel understanding that the Son of God left his throne in heaven and went to the cross and shed his blood and died in my place and bore the wrath of God for all eternity that my sins deserved. He bore it in his own body on the tree. He died in my place, was separated from the Father in my place, and then was raised to the dead. And those who put their faith in him share in his life, his resurrection life, and are forgiven and made new. That understanding of the gospel drives you to lay down your life for others. You no longer live for your own glory. You no longer live for the pleasures of this world. You live to serve others. That's the new life that Christ has given us. That's what it produces. We measure progress in our lives in terms of the level of our servitude. The greatest among you shall be your servant, Jesus said. If you remember the qualifications, one interesting thing in this passage, if you remember the qualifications back in chapter 2 that were given for elders and deacons, and if you're familiar with the qualifications as they're given in the book of Titus, you'll notice a lot of similarities here to what the qualifications he gives for these widows that are going to serve full time in the church. They must manage their children well, as the elders and deacons had that same qualification. Faithfulness in marriage, just as an elder and a deacon was to be a one-woman man, the, the, the widow who was serving for the church was to be a one-man woman. A good reputation, hospitality, maturity. These are all characteristics given for the ordained officers. And we said at the time, it just underlines the fact, we said at the time that if you look at the qualifications to be an officer, to be an elder or a deacon in the church, those are not unique to the officers. The officers only are to have them in an exceptional way, to a greater degree. But all of God's people should reflect these characteristics that the leaders have. And so what Paul's saying to the widows here is if you're going to assist the ordained leadership of the church, you need to reflect the same qualities. You need to be exceptional in the same qualities. And then just to underline the necessity for experience and maturity, then Paul gives a warning about the danger of immature servants. In verse 11, he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. It's interesting that younger widows were not to be put on the roll. They were not to be put in this kind of a position. He's not saying that older women are necessarily more spiritually mature than younger women. And he's not saying that younger women are necessarily less mature than older women. What he's emphasizing here is that maturity is proven over the course of a life that is well lived. And again, it's the same kind of a requirement that was given regarding elders in chapter 3, verse 6, where Paul says, the elder candidate must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Paul is concerned for the same danger for these women serving on the church's support, serving on the name, in the name of the church. He has that same concern, that they would fall under condemnation. He, he, he expresses his concerns in this way. In verse 12, he says they, were, they would be in danger of incurring condemnation. In verse 14, he says they would give the adversary an occasion for slander. And verse 15, the danger of straying after Satan. So these are serious concerns that he has for the younger, immature woman being put in a position of service like that. Paul mentions two dangers in particular. The first danger is that they would break their commitment due to a desire to remarry. 
Now this takes a little bit of interpretation and I don't think the ESV helps us very much here. The, the ESV seems to uh, reflect one possible interpretation of the passage, which is that these young women, because they would have a desire to leave their commitment to the church and to service, to go and remarry, that they would remarry, in, uh, they would uh, marry a pagan, they would marry an unbeliever, and therefore they would depart from the church, they would, they would be denying their faith in Christ, and they would become apostate. That, some, some commentators believe that's what Paul's saying here, and that's what the language in the ESV seems to reflect. But I don't think that that's in the context that's what Paul's saying. He's actually concerned not that they would leave the church or that they would break their commitment to be a disciple of Christ. He's concerned that they might break their commitment to serve Christ. That they have taken, the idea is that they have taken a vow to remain unmarried and to live on the support of the church and to serve the church in these ways. And his concern is that they would become under condemnation for having broken their vow to the Lord and to the church. That's his concern. The word, uh, if it, back in uh, verse 12, where he says his concern is they would incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith, the word faith there could just as easily be translated pledge or vow. And I think if you, if you translate it that way, the passage, I think, fits better in the context, and it's, it is what Paul's trying to say. Not that they would leave the faith, but that they would break their vow and their commitment to serve in this position. The second temptation he mentioned is a temptation to laziness and gossip. Look at verse 13. They learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. He's speaking there to the, the tendency of the immature. The tendency of the immature is to take advantage of the church caring for their needs. The idea that if, the, if they don't have to work for a living and all their needs are provided for, instead of using that as an opportunity to serve others like a mature saint would do, that instead in their immaturity, in their selfishness, they would take advantage of the church, that they would not serve as they should. And matter of fact, if they went around to homes looking to do ministry, instead of actually ministering to the families, they would actually engage in gossip and idle talk. And so his, Paul's concern is that in immaturity, the tendency to be in a, position, in, in a position like that would to become lazy and to become busybodies, gossipers, those that meddle in the lives of others. Now, lest you think that Paul is a sexist and saying that that's only a tendency of women, we saw back in 2 Thessalonians that it was true for anybody who's idle. He was concerned there about, and there it was largely men, the idea they weren't working, they weren't doing any jobs. And in their idleness, he expresses his concern in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. This is, uh, this is what he says there. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see, laziness is the devil's workshop, as they used to say. It's, it's, you know, idleness, the idea of not being busy, not being about the work of the kingdom, allows your sinful nature to begin to express itself. And so Paul was concerned that instead of younger widows, immature widows, doing real ministry to help build the kingdom, they would end up actually creating more fires, and there is no sin in the church that creates more fires and more difficulties in the shepherding work of the leadership than gossip. 
the idea that they'd actually be harming the work of the church. And so again, Paul is appointing to the need for experience, the need for maturity, because out of maturity comes this genuine heart for service. And so he points these younger widows back to what we call the training ground for service in the church, and that's the home. In verse 14, he says, So I would have the younger widows marry, bear children, and manage households. And again, it's very similar to what Paul had said to the elders in chapter 3, verse 5. One of the qualifications for elders was, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You need to go to the training ground in order to learn to be a servant. And the best training ground that's available is in the home, managing a household, being a mother, being a father in the, in the, in the image of Christ. They were to show themselves faithful in their responsibilities in the home, in their own families, and therefore develop that track record of service, that earn that good reputation that would qualify them to be provided for by the church and enter into the full-time ministry of serving the families of the church. Parenting is great training for servitude. I don't think many of us would have chosen to enter into the calling of being a mother or father if we had known to what degree we would become slaves and servants to those for whom we were responsible. We had no idea that we would have to do the things that we did. We had no idea what it meant to be on the job 24-7. We had no idea what it was like to care for someone in their best moments and their worst moments. It is literally, in the kingdom of God, the, 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 the Christian household, the, the Christ-centered household, is boot camp. It's where you learn to be a servant. Now, having said that, I'm not saying that single people can't serve. Certainly they can and they do. And it's interesting, in light of that, to balance what Paul says here about younger widows and their desire to remarry and encouraging them to go back into that boot camp, that Paul over in 1 Corinthians 7, and a lot of people point to 1 Corinthians 7, and they think Paul was against marriage because Paul counsels the, the, the Christians in that church to not be married. Let me read that portion to you just to make you familiar with it again. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 26. Pay cl close attention to the very first phrase that Paul says. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. It's interesting, he gives opposite advice to the Christians in Corinth. You know, it's better for you to stay unmarried because of the present distress. And we've always understood that, that the church in Corinth was in a, in a situation of distress, both internally, we know that from the book of 1 Corinthians, and externally, they were under persecution. And so Paul is basically saying to those Christians, if you need to get married, get married. There's nothing wrong with getting married. 
but it's good if you stay unmarried so that you can keep your focus on the work of the kingdom because things are, we're in crisis mode right now. But then over in Ephesus, in a church that was much more stable, he says to those young widows, get married. <laughs> go, go, to, go to boot camp. Learn how to be a servant. You want to be one of these widows who's supported by the church and does full-time ministry and service? Get trained in the household. Become mature. Become more like Christ. Get a track record. Get a good reputation. And then we'll welcome you into that role. Both married people and single people are called to serve. The advantage of single people is they have the ability to focus on serving the church and those outside the church. The advantage of married people is that they have this exquisite training opportunity to be provided by selfish children. And you know what it's like in war sometimes. Sometimes in war, when there's, you're in a crisis, when you're in great distress in a war, you'll stick a, you'll stick a gun in any warm body and stick them out there on the front lines because you're, you're fighting off the enemy, you're right in the heat of the battle. But it's better to send the soldier to boot camp, to put him forth through a full course of training, and then put him on the front lines. And so you get that kind of distinction between the church in Ephesus and the church in Corinth. Let me wrap this all up quickly by pointing you back to something we read together earlier in the service. Back, if you want to turn your bulletin back a page, two pages, to the passage we read from Proverbs 31. We often talk about in Scripture, you know, that Scripture doesn't give us stories of spiritual heroes and spiritual heroines who would inspire us to better service or, or evangelism or whatever. So many of the prominent people in Scripture are revealed to be sinners just like us, deeply flawed, broken people. But every once in a while, you'll come across someone in Scripture about which Scripture has nothing but glowing things to say about them. And this wife in Proverbs 31 is one of those rare people. She's beautiful. This is a description of one of the most beautiful persons in all of Scripture. We don't know what her physical appearance was like. And a couple weeks ago, I joked that she may have been actually as hard as she worked. She might have been actually kind of a rough and rugged kind of, uh, you know, uh, muscular. I don't know. I mean, you just, I get a sense sometimes when I read Proverbs 31 that maybe she wasn't really that physically attractive. It didn't matter. Nothing is mentioned about her. I mean, she might have been physically beautiful. I don't know. This, the passage doesn't tell us because that doesn't matter. The kind of beauty that Paul talks about, the kind of beauty that Peter talks about, she was gorgeous. She was an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. That's what Scripture's trying to say. And what was beautiful about her? She worked hard for her family. She provided food and income. She made clothes for the people around her. She gave to the needy. She taught with wisdom and gentleness and kindness. And she's given one of the greatest honors given in Scripture. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. That is so counterintuitive. We need the Holy Spirit to sink it deep into our souls. Let's pray. Father, teach us to be servants. Jesus Christ showed us the lengths to which we are called to serve others. We cannot atone for anyone's sin, 
but we can serve them in whatever their needs, physical, emotional, material, whatever their needs may be, we can serve them in such a way that we point them to the one who is able to save them by his shed blood on the cross. Father, I pray that we as individual believers and that we as a church family would become known for our servants' hearts as we live out what the gospel has first put within us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.